You know, it's interesting that as we go through life, how decisions that we make are so often interconnected. And sometimes when we make a decision in life, we don't fully appreciate the fact that this decision is going to lead toward a number of other subsequent decisions, or that when we make one decision, sometimes it's actually interconnected to a variety of decisions that we all make at the same time. Other times, we do understand that decisions relate to each other, our decisions often function in a web together, but we don't often fully appreciate the importance of the subsequent decisions, but rather we just focus on the primary decision. You know this to be true. You see this in all kinds of areas in your life. Uh, one example of a, a sequence of decisions that you are, many of you make or have made anyway is with regard to your career path. You choose a major and that leads you to a limited number of choices for a particular college or university or trade school and you make a choice. And in that choice, you're led down the path of maybe an internship program that you're able to go into. And that leads to another choice about one or two or maybe career, three career paths. And, and choice after choice after choice. And they're all related to each other in some way. But you can think of another uh, series of choices that you make that are much more maybe even closely interconnected to each other. And that's when you get married. When you get married to somebody, you are choosing to commit yourself to them, but at the very same time, you are choosing to engage with, to care for, and even to love the family of the person that you are marrying. Sometimes that's very easy, and other times that's very difficult, but the decision and the decisions are all interconnected very closely, aren't they? The same thing could be true uh, or could be said of the Christian faith, right? We know that the most important decision that you make in this life is whether or not you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you make that decision, if you put your trust in him to forgive you, then this sets you on a new course, a new trajectory of life. And we know that when you make that faith commitment to him, that there is a sense in which another decision is almost immediately made, and that is a sense of surrender. You surrender your life to him in a certain way, which means you give up certain things that maybe you enjoyed, but things that are not pleasing to God. And in contrast, you replace them with a variety of other things that you now pursue, the things of God. In this case, Philippians chapter 1 and two and three have been giving us a series of interconnected choices that Christians make that follow the primary choice of putting their faith in Jesus. We saw in Philippians one that one of, one of the closely related choices that we make after faith or in, in concert with faith is the choice of agenda. Whose agenda am I going to live this life by? My own to pursue money and pleasure and whatever my heart desires, or am I willing to make the choice to pursue God's agenda for my life, which is primarily and most easily stated in knowing Jesus and helping others to know him. And that is a choice. It's a choice to say, I'm not going to follow this agenda anymore. I'm going to follow this one. Likewise, we see in this book of Philippians uh, that 
we could say participating in the life of a community of believers is a choice that you make that is inextricably linked to faith in Jesus. That you participate in the universal family of God by participating in local families of God. The decisions are linked. Well, today, at the end of Philippians chapter 3, we see two more such decisions. Two decisions that Christians are called to make that are linked to their faith in Jesus and that constitute forward progress in the Christian life. They constitute growth. We've titled the series Forward, uh, which is the, this dynamic, or trying to communicate this dynamic of ongoing progress in the Christian life. And Paul picks this up in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. So let's look at it together. He's continuing a thought that we'll come back to in a moment. In verse 12, he picks up and he says, Not that I have already obtained it, obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do is forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Two decisions that you make in following Jesus that are inextricably linked to your profession of faith. And, we, and for some of you, these two decisions will sort of be a fresh wake-up call. Maybe you're a new Christian, and this is going to help set the trajectory of your spiritual life. For many of you who have been a Christian for a long time, these two decisions will serve as simple reminders but so as is so often the case, sometimes it's those simple reminders that keep us on the right path. Here's decision number one. Be a person that continues to grow spiritually rather than stagnates. Be a person that continues to grow spiritually. Make the choice, I'm going to continue to grow spiritually. I'm not going to stagnate. Now this section of Philippians chapter 3, as we mentioned a moment ago, piggybacks at the end of the previous section, where Paul gives this wonderful treatise about the greatness of the person of Jesus. 
And he gives these summary statement in verses 10 and 11. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so now Paul starts out in verse 12 and 13 and he says things like, not that I've already obtained this and onward down, I do not consider that I've made it my own. The it that he is talking about, that he has not yet attained, that he has not yet made his own, is knowing Jesus fully, becoming like Jesus fully, experiencing the power of Jesus fully, and most obviously not yet attaining to the resurrection of the dead. The emphasis that Paul gives is Jesus has done these wonderful things, and yet... I have not yet arrived. I've not yet arrived. Now remember who's saying this. Paul, the super Jew, the super apostle, the one who earlier in chapter 3 gave this lengthy resume of how he has fulfilled the law. And even to say, as to the law, I'm blameless. And then he went on to say, but despite all these things, Jesus is greater. His righteousness is greater. His power is greater. And and, and this applied to me, this righteousness, is what gives me standing before God. And yet, I have not yet arrived. The legal work of justification before God was completed on the cross and proven in faith. But his transformation from legalist to one who relies on grace, from old man to new man, from sinner to saint, he proclaims, I have not yet arrived, and so I keep pressing on. Now, we cannot overestimate the importance of living in this tension. Because the temptation to live as if you have arrived is ever before you. You might not display this temptation in ways that you'd think, but I can think of at least five, easily more than five, but I'll list just five types of of people that exhibit this type of temptation that you have arrived. The first is the most obvious and probably the one that is most dangerous to American evangelicalism. This is the person that says, I was saved, I made a decision for Christ, and I have done absolutely nothing to pursue him or grow in him in my life. And there's a whole sociological dynamic that comes behind American evangelicalism, and and the summary is very simply this. We have a great history in America of revival. We have a great history of, of conversion where we put an emphasis on that moment where you move from death to life, where there's a faith action decision to put your faith in Jesus, and as a result, you are saved. Unfortunately, we also have a history of not particularly focusing on discipleship or faithfulness that accompanies that very faith. And so we have a lot of revivals and altar calls and churches that do altar calls every single week. And and, and we have seen a dynamic in which many people put their trust in the act, the act of walking down the aisle, but aren't pursuing the faith 
that is verified as true in the life that follows. And so you might hear somebody say, maybe you yourself have said, I was saved 20 years ago. And you look at that person's life or you look at your own life and you say, but you might not recognize that today. But I'm trusting in the fact that when I walked that aisle 20 years ago, I'm all good. (laughs) I made the choice. It's fine. I'm all set. And this is a danger of one who says that they have arrived. The second type of person that exhibits this type of behavior is the one who is discouraged or the disenfranchised Christian. Sometimes relational hurts, personal struggles, difficulties to overcome sin lead to discouragement or being disenfranchised. And these Christians sometimes stop pursuing growth. They wouldn't say, they'd never articulate, I've arrived, but they would, by their actions, indicate, I've gone as far as I'm going to go. And for this type of person, what's needed is courage and resolve to get off the mat and get back into the fight. And a Christian, a warm, loving Christian to come alongside of them in encouragement and to receive them when they do. The third type of person that exhibits this I've arrived mentality is the prideful Christian. This is the one who thinks that the ordinary means of growth, and by ordinary means of growth, we mean studying the Bible, praying, serving God, being obedient to him. These are the ways that you grow. This prideful Christian thinks that those ordinary means are just too elementary for them. They say things like, I don't serve in the church anymore because I've done my time. Or, I've read the Bible through once or twice and I know what it says. This is like the story of the two teachers who were applying for the same position as vice principal of their local school. One had been teaching for eight years and the other had been teaching for a total of 20. And everyone in the school expected the teacher with the greater experience to get the job. But when the decision was made, that the person with eight years of teaching experience was to receive the position of vice principal. Others in the school were shocked and the teacher who was overlooked for the job complained bitterly. I've had 20 years teaching experience. She has only had eight, he cried. I'm vastly more qualified. To which the school board's reply went something like this. Yes, sir, you do have 20 years teaching to her eight. But where she has eight years experience, you have one year experience repeated 20 times. Simply experiencing the passage of time doesn't mean that we've grown or learned from those experiences during that time. So don't be a prideful Christian who doesn't pursue growth. I think there's a fourth type of Christian that exhibits this I've arrived mentality. And we might call this the Sunday Christian. This is the Christian that comes to the most important gathering of church life. And and as Pastor Chris articulated a, a few moments ago, that our meeting on Sunday morning is the gathering of God's people. We sing praises to him. We pray to him. We give to him. We hear together from his word. This is the primary encouragement and discipleship vehicle of local churches. And yet, we also know that there are six other days in the week. 
and that Christians are called to live as living sacrifices to God every day. And that as such, there are all kinds of other ways that we can pursue growth in him, whether that's personally or in our families or in the body of believers. We talk about plus ones all the time here at Old North. There are a lot of different ways that we uh, try to facilitate your growth. And we encourage people regularly, find one other venue to have the Bible open with Christians during the week. This will help you grow. The Sunday Christians... uh, often, not always, not always, but often simply says, I'm going to get my spiritual dose one day and the other six days I'm just going to do sort of whatever life takes me to do. And in a sense, they say, I've arrived. The last, or at least fifth, type of Christian that we see struggles with this I've arrived mentality is the lazy or worldly Christian. This is the type of Christian that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 6. The type of Christian that has a, a, a mental recognition, a knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And as Paul articulates in Romans 5, the grace of God is a free gift to you. You are justified alone by God's grace. It's a wonderful and ongoing free gift for your redemption. And so some Christians might naturally say, wow, that's wonderful. So I can keep doing whatever I want to do and I can keep tapping the well of grace again and again and again. And so this causes Paul to ask the question, what should we say then, brothers? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? May it never be! Because we know that we have died with Christ and therefore live with Christ. The lazier worldly Christian continues to sin willfully and knowingly that grace may abound. And the, and the first question for this person that they must ask themselves is, am I really a Christian at all? Because if there is an indifference towards sin and there's no active desire to follow Jesus, then they most likely need to humbly examine themselves, seek Jesus' forgiveness, and move from a place of vague recognition or affinity to him toward active faith and surrender and trust in a new life. Those are just five examples of people who have said that they've arrived in different types of ways. Maybe you fall into one of those categories, or maybe you don't. But whether you do or whether you're actively seeking him and continuing to grow, the reality is the same. You have not yet arrived. And so follow the example that Paul sets. The example that we see in verse 13. One thing I do. Look at it with me. Verse 13. But the one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. This is an analogy of a runner, a runner that we often see in scripture. And this runner really has three points of the analogy. Number one, the runner is not distracted by any other person or any other thing in the race. They don't look back to the things that have been behind them and say, oh, that was wonderful. They don't look back to their good works by the law, or they don't look back to the previous grace that they've received and say, I'm all set. They keep pressing forward toward the goal. 
Number two, we see in this analogy that they're straining towards something specific. There's one goal. The goal is the consummation of knowing Jesus, of experiencing Jesus, of experiencing his power, of having this resurrection. One goal that they strain for for the rest of their days. And it's interesting that Paul uses this analogy in terms of himself. He is the runner. (laughs) Even though he's mature, even though he's faithful, even though he's actively serving, he still is the runner. And he says in verse 15, let all of those who are mature think this way. The more mature you are, the more you realize you need to grow. (laughs) And if you don't think that you need to grow, then that indicates a level of immaturity on your part. And so the challenge is press forward, keep growing. So how? Where do you start? I think you start with the simple means. You study the word of God by yourself and with others. You pray and you make this a rhythm of your life. You seek to find an avenue to serve the Lord. And you pursue obedience to him. These are the simple means that God uses to grow Christians. He has done this for some thousands of years and he will continue to do so. At Old North, we provide a variety of vehicles to help you in that. And it is our mission to raise disciples of Jesus Christ who are healthy and equipped for the very ministry of the gospel that Paul is talking about here, that they may know Jesus and help others to know him. Christians should never be satisfied with what we've already experienced in our Christian life or the grace that we've already received. It should always be alarming to you to hear a Christian say that they are not growing in their knowledge of Jesus. That should shock you. Because forward progress is the manner of the Christian life. So Paul says, be a person that continues to pursue growth rather than a person that stagnates. That's decision number one. Here's decision number two. Decision number two is be a person that looks toward Jesus' return rather than looking toward earthly things. Now this contrast should challenge us very acutely because we live in a time of rampant materialism. (laughs) We live in a time in which we often look to and are infected with this desire for material things, the very material things that are being talked about here at the end of Philippians 3. And conversely, I don't know about you, but I, as a moment of confession, I even find it hard to have the return of Jesus be the constant focal point of my long-term vision and goal. So easily does it become a passing thought, and then I'm captured or enraptured by the tyranny of the urgent that is right in front of me. But to be a person that looks toward Jesus' return rather than earthly things is the charge. And so if we put these two things together... We might put it this way. Let your hope for the future, the return of Jesus, compel your growth in the present. Let your hope for the future compel your growth in the present. Now let's look at that contrast of hope for the future. Look with me at verse 18. Paul describes one who is focused on earthly things. 
In verse 18, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. We might summarize these people as people with minds set on earthly things and they're described in this way. They were thought to be a Christian. They showed some sort of evidence of that. But in the final analysis, their profession of faith was superficial. How do you know? Well, they've actively become an enemy of the cross. This indicates that they're not true believers. They're marked by seeking their own glory, but this own glory, he says, is actually their shame, meaning it's sinful things that they're pursuing to elevate themselves. He says they focus on the pleasures that come from food. Their gods aren't great and lofty. Their gods aren't transcendent or eternal. They don't look to the one true God as the lofty, high, transcendent, or eternal. Their gods, in fact, rise no higher than waist length, simply focusing on their bellies. And in the end, these people will be destroyed. This is a warning. This is a warning for us who claim Jesus is our Savior. If we focus on earthly things, if our attention is always gazed on the next pleasure, if our goals and our standards for life are focused on material things that come before us, then we too can expect the same end. In early 2001, some towns in India were stricken by a plague of monkeys. Have you ever heard that story? These monkeys were so numerous that they would invade homes and villages, they would bite people, they'd make off with their supplies, they'd steal their food. This is not a problem of America. But it was agreed that these monkeys needed to be caught and relocated. And so the people in these towns resorted to a traditional method for catching them. They gathered their old milk bottles, they tied the milk bottles to the ground, and they placed inside of them something that the monkey desired, often a piece of fruit or maybe a piece of candy. And the monkeys would come, and they would stick their hand in the jar, seeing the sweet candy, and they would clench tightly their fist with the candy in the middle. But with their fist clenched, they could not pull their hand back out of the neck of the jar. Now you would think that as their captors approached, the greedy little monkeys would release the candy, pull their hand out, and scamper away. This would have been easy for them to do. But so enraptured by their desire for their material things were the monkeys that they would not let go of the grip of the sweet candy in their hand, even to the point of their own capture. Friends, this is a picture of materialism. This is a picture, even though we know Jesus says a love for material things is dangerous for our soul. Even though we know that an affection for material things is dangerous for our world, we find it so difficult to let go of the material or physical things before us. We have this incessant need to consume and to possess and to even desire more, even to our own demise. Here's the contrasting decision 
that you're called to make? Are you going to be a person who looks toward the return of Jesus? Or are you going to be a person who focuses on earthly things? Paul gives us the description of the person who looks for the return of Jesus in verse 20. Look at it with me. He says, but our citizenship, but our citizenship, Christian, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let your hope for the future compel your present growth. When you put your faith in Jesus, you change, your citizenship changes from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of the beloved son. And this son, the king, Jesus, will return someday. Upon his return, you will be transformed. This is called your glorification. You will receive a heavenly body. This heavenly body will not have weakness, it will not have deformity, it will not have illness, it will not have pain. Now, for those of you, like my family, who've been just sort of through the ringer of winter illnesses in my family, and many of you have experienced the same, that is really good news. That Jesus will come back, and that he will give us these perfect bodies, and and the power that he uses to sustain all things, to exercise authority over all things, the power that the King of kings and the Lord of lords uses to subject all things to himself will be applied to you personally and physically as your salvation is made complete. Your body is glorified and eternity awaits. Now this, my friends is a powerful reality that should motivate us differently in the present. The long view motivates your present priorities. The long view leads toward preparation. So important is this reality that Martin Luther said, there's only two important days in this life, today and that day. <laughs> The long view informs your present priorities. You know this. You, you, some of you save for your kid's college education if you're able to do that. You do that because you know that when the day comes, you're not going to be able to foot that bill all in one chunk. And so it informs your present priorities. Some of you are saving for retirement. I hope most of you or all of you are. You do that because even though you know you can use that money for something else right now, something good, something enjoyable, something for the benefit of your family, there's a day coming where you won't have the same income that you have today. So the long view has implications for your present priorities. I wonder if you know anyone who is a prepper. Preppers illustrate this better than anybody else. Some of you are preppers. I know you. A prepper is someone who is concerned about being prepared to care for their family in the midst of catastrophe. And so what do preppers do? They stockpile canned goods and water. Because if the whole grid collapses, they want to be ready. Some of them take it to a next, there's varying degrees of preppers, you see. So some of them take it to the next level and they stockpile guns and ammunition. Because they figure if I have food and water, I need to defend that food and water. 
and my own family. And so I got to stockpile those things too. Some of them keep seeds for planting crops and others take it so far as to build vaults and bunkers so that when the catastrophe comes, they're ready. A prepper illustrates better than anybody else how the long view has implications for your present daily reality. They're prepared when the worst comes and they think about it all the time. And if you ask them about it, trust me, you'll get a long discourse on how the catastrophe is probably going to come because they're thinking about it. They're prepared and they're ready. And depending upon your relationship with them, they might let you into the vault. Life holds very few certainties for us. You don't know what will happen with your health. You do not know and you cannot predict the decisions that your kids will make. You don't know the time and the day of your own death or the death of the ones that you love. There are no financial guarantees in this world, no matter how conservative you might live. But there is one thing that's certain, one thing. Jesus is coming back. This is a certainty. And so let your future hope in his return compel your growth in the present. And Paul says in verse one of chapter four, therefore brothers whom I love, who I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So there's two decisions, at least today in this text, there's two decisions that are inextricably linked from your decision to put your faith in Christ. The decision to be a person who continues to pursue growth and the decision to be a person that continues to let their vision or their gaze or their priorities be set on the return of Jesus. We can summarize it by saying, let your hope for future compel your growth in the present. And you're here. You're here it's Sunday morning at Old North Church. You have said by your very presence, you've said by the fact that you sang very loudly with Chris and TK today, you've said that I'm interested in God and I'm interested at least in some way of continuing to grow in him. But I want to encourage you to make sure that you are moving past a subsistence diet. Keep growing. I wonder if you've ever heard the story of the people who died by eating themselves to the point of starvation. Have you heard that story? One of the most famous explorers of modern history was a man named Scott of the Antarctic. And sadly, Scott and his party died during their trip in the Antarctic, but only recently have scientists begun to understand perhaps why they died. And it seems like they died as they starved themselves to death while eating. Now, it sounds like nonsense, doesn't it? How could you starve to death while eating? But it's not. Scientists tell us that we need to take in at about 6,300 to 7,500 kilojoules of energy that come from food each day in order to survive. Now, Scott and his party took in around three times the daily caloric intake required of food. They took in about 18,000 kilojoules of energy every single day, and you would think that would be enough. But when you're doing the demanding work of 
pulling sleds and boats and a variety of things across the Antarctic, you don't need just three times the daily amount of food. You actually need 42,000 kilojoules of food energy, or six to seven times the daily intake to survive. Science, scientists suggest that each member of Scott's team, despite eating three times the daily food requirement, probably lost about 35 kilograms apiece, and in fact, they most likely starved to death, even while continuing to eat. Our spiritual life is often like this. We feel like things are going just fine, but life is tough and life is busy and we can cut down a little bit on our time in prayer and our reflection on God's word and our fellowship with other Christians. We do what we can to get by spiritually. We live on a spiritual subsistence diet. All the while, we begin to starve ourselves to death. And it's precisely in those times when greater input is needed to avoid spiritual starvation. It's a simple reminder, but it's a good reminder nevertheless. Let your hope for the future compel your present growth. Let your hope for the future compel your growth in the present. And may God help us as we pursue him in this wonderful, agenda-changing life that he has for us. Let me pray for you and with you. Please pray. Father, we thank you for a good reminder like this. We thank you for your word that rings true through the ministry of the Spirit. We pray that you would help us practically to continue to reorient our days, our time, our hours, our minutes for growth. And that you would bless these desires and these efforts and indeed expand the growth of each person and even our church as a whole, that we would be more faithful to you. That the markers of growth would be seen in our growing love for each other. That you would empower us to serve you more faithfully. And that we would, in a time where it is so difficult to have a sustained vision of the return of your son, that we indeed would grow in our ability to gaze upon him with hope and joy and motivating delight. We pray these things because your son is glorious, because he is greater, because he is worthy of our full allegiance. Amen and amen. amen.